Today's scripture is in Nehemiah. We're continuing on in chapter 4, verse 7 through 23. But when Sambalat and Tobiah and the Arabs and the Ammonites and the Ashadites heard that the repairing of the walls of Jerusalem was going forward and that the breaches were beginning to be closed, they were very angry. And they all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and to cause confusion in it. And we prayed to our God and set a guard as a protection against them day and night. In Judah it was said, the strength of those who bear the burdens is failing. There is too much rubble. By ourselves we will not be able to rebuild the wall. And our enemies said, they will not know or see till we come among them and kill them and stop the work. At that time the Jews who lived near them came from all directions and said to us ten times, you must return to us. So in the lowest parts of the space behind the wall, in open places, I stationed the people by their clans with their swords, their spears, and their bows. And I looked and arose and said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. When our enemies heard that it was known to us that God had frustrated their plan, we all returned to the wall, each to his work, from that day on, half of my servants worked on construction and half held the spears, shields, bows, and coats of mail. And the leaders stood behind the whole house of Judah who were building on the wall. Those who carried burdens were loaded in such a way that each labored on the work with one hand and held his weapon with the other. And each of the builders had his sword strapped at his side while he built. The man who sounded the trumpet was beside me. And I said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, the work is great and widely spread, and we are separated on the wall, far from one another. In the place where you hear the sound of the trumpet, rally to us there, our God will fight for us. So we labored at the work, and half of them held the spears from the break of dawn until the stars came out. I also said to the people at that time, let every man and his servant pass the night within Jerusalem, that they may be a guard for us by night and may labor by day. So neither I nor my brothers nor my servants nor the men of the guard who followed me, none of us took off our clothes, each kept his weapon at his right hand. Good morning, 9 a.m. I uh, had two hours of sleep. It wasn't anything dealing with my baby or anything. Some of you know like I have pain in my joints and I couldn't even sleep last night. I had two hours and I couldn't walk last night. And so I took these drugs that say, like, don't drive after you take them and whatever. But I feel really awake. <laughs> and I could walk, and it was cool because I, I fell asleep for two hours, and I was praying that whole time, and here I am. So maybe after my preaching tonight, then uh, I'll go back to being bedridden. But anyway, so far, we're in Nehemiah chapter 4, and uh, let's pray before we get started here. God, thank you so much for these people, and I pray that they would sense your love this morning. I pray, God, that we would be good representations of who you are, that we would be a blessing to one another. In Jesus' name, amen. Last week, we ended with the principle that when we go about doing work for God for his glory, that we're going to be met with opposition, that this opposition can be found throughout the Bible. There's no exception to this rule, this principle, and here's the reason why, because this adversary that we find ourselves against when we're doing God's work for God's glory is an enemy that always looks for an opening, an opportunity to oppose us. Ephesians chapter 6, verses 11 and 12. 
Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. We will face opposition when doing work for the glory of God. And this is something that Nehemiah faced, where Nehemiah, while he was doing this work, was jeered and he was despised and ridiculed. And when we look at Nehemiah chapter 2, verse 20, it says, The God of heaven will make us prosper, and we his servants will arise and build, but you have no portion or right or claim in Jerusalem. So Nehemiah turned to God as evidence multiple times that he went to God in prayer, and Nehemiah knew he couldn't do it on his own. He knew, Psalm chapter 127, verse 1, unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. And so here Nehemiah was with opposition, jeering at him, ridiculing him, mocking him as he went about God's work. Now what happens when that ridicule and that jeering and that mocking don't work? Well, the opposition has to come up with something more. They have to come up with a plan of action that, hey, the words aren't working. We're going to have to do something about this. And you'd hope that God would have answered Nehemiah right away because that would have been just a really encouraging thing for us. That if you pray something, it happens. Thank God for that prayer for the pain last night. It worked. But it doesn't happen all the time this way. Right? Here, Nehemiah is essentially praying that God would kind of move his adversaries along and just let them finish their project. Just move these guys along. It doesn't happen. It doesn't happen at all. And things just don't always go smoothly in your life, do they? I mean, you pray for things, and you just kind of look at your own life, and man, things aren't smooth, and things don't always work out. And you're faithful, and you're praying, and you really mean it. And you're having that little faith the size of a mustard seed, and you're reading these things that say, hey, they can move mountains, but in your own life, it's just not happening. Well, you look at Nehemiah. When Nehemiah prayed before, things seemed to go as planned, right? Granted, the first time we're encountered with Nehemiah, it takes three to four months of him fasting and praying. But it didn't seem all that pressing back then because his life wasn't threatened. It's just something that he felt really sad about and, and it brought him down. So much so that King Artaxerxes noticed this sadness. And then he asked Nehemiah, what's going on? Why are you so sad? And then what does he do right after the king asked that? He goes into prayer again. And from that prayer, that seemed to be instantaneous, that God answered him and gave him this wisdom as to what to ask for. But then he enters this time of prayer in Nehemiah chapter 4, and what do we find here? God, this time my life's in danger, and I really need you to come through. Get rid of these clowns. Move them on. Why are they still here? And things got worse. They get worse. Have any of you experienced this? You're a faithful prayer, and you're bringing things before God. And yet, why are things getting worse? You have this rough time in your life. You go to God in prayer. He's been so faithful to answer your prayers in the past. And now you're entering into prayer with him now, and then they get worse. Wow. That rough time that you're going through, you would have hoped for deliverance, but then it gets worse. Take a look back at verse 6 really quickly. So we built the wall, and all the wall was joined together to half its height, for the people had a mind to work. Now, let's take a look at that phrase there, half its height, just for a moment here. 
This is a really, really critical time with anything we're working on, that halfway point, right? It's when that first half of what you've done, it gets evaluated so that you can do a better second half, so that you can finish that project. You look at our very own Golden State Warriors who are probably going to win the championship. There's a halftime in basketball, and in game three, they are like stinking. So much so that by the fourth quarter, they're down by 20. But it's obvious that at that time, their coach is in the locker room making adjustments, telling them about how they're playing, that, hey guys, it's time to rally. This is championship time, and we need to do these things in order to win this game because we're not finished yet. And that other team is not giving up, especially if they're winning, especially if it's their home court. They've been here for a long time, and that's the picture that we have here, because there's these other guys, Sanballat, Tobiah, Geshem. They are at home. They've been living there for quite a while with the upper hand. These walls have been destroyed for a really long time, for decades. And the way that they were living their lives, they had the upper hand. The Jews were the oppressed. They were subservient to these other people that are around them. And here we see the people of God at a halfway point. They built it. And Nehemiah needed to make some adjustments or what they worked up for up to this point all season long. It's gone. It's for naught. That's it. And they're not done yet. And these opponents are doing their best to stop them at their work. And this time they're bringing reinforcements. They're bringing more friends. If you notice in this verse here in verse 7, it's a people group that wasn't mentioned ever before. It's the Ashdodites. It's a new group. Verse 7, But when Sanballat and Tobiah and the Arabs and the Ammonites and the Ashdodites heard that the repairing of the walls of Jerusalem was going forward and that the breaches were beginning to be closed, they were very angry. And they all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and to cause confusion in it. Things are getting worse. Prior to the Ashdodites joining the opposition, Let's get this picture in our head about the geography that these guys had strongholds in. See, Sanballat as a Horonite, he's a Samaritan. He's a Samaritan leader. He's an official of Samaria. And these guys had a stronghold in the north of Jerusalem. We have a map of this showing all these areas. This is Sanballat's domain to the north. You move on to Tobiah and the Ammonites. Where's Ammon today? It's in Jordan. Right, Ammon, Jordan. It's the same Ammon. Modern day Ammon, these guys are to the east. This is where Tobiah and his gang have their stronghold. And then you look at Geshem. Where is the Arab stronghold? Arabia. Where's Saudi Arabia? South. So these guys are essentially surrounded, except for one area, west. Where is Ashdod? West. It's an ancient Philistine city. It's where they worship the god Dagon. And so this is where it is. Now they are totally landlocked. They are totally surrounded. Things are getting worse. Before you would think, hey, we have at least some route of escape. Maybe we can just head out towards the sea and head out. Not anymore. You are not going anywhere. You are stuck right there. And we're going to get you. And here Ashdod is between Joppa and Gaza. And they are right there. One of the five chief Philistine cities right there. Now you keep in mind who's in power of this entire region. Persian king Artaxerxes. 
Right? He's in charge of the whole thing. The guy who granted Nehemiah his cupbearer safe passage with papers that he provided the governors in this trans-Euphrates journey. The guy who provided papers to Asaph, the royal keeper of the forests. And not only that, what else did King Artaxerxes provide? A military escort. So he provides this military escort. So think of this. Do you think Samballat, Tobiah, Geshem, any of these guys are going to come against the king? Even though they kind of have strongholds in the entire area, are these guys going to come in direct war with the king's army and the king's cupbearer? Not a chance. Not a chance. These guys are going to attempt these acts of terrorism, but they're not going to do an all-out war. They are not this stupid. And so we see the hand of God at work again because it wasn't just a bunch of everyday people who have been oppressed for decades going up against everyone else around them. They had some military around them. Otherwise, these guys would have surely been defeated. These are just a bunch of oppressed for generations people here. They had a military backing of a king. So rather than this all-out war, these guys had to resort to acts of terrorism, looking at opportunities around the wall that allowed them to terrorize Israel. And as they did that, they had the hope that they would confuse them, discourage them, demoralize them so much so that, you know, we're just going to quit this project. This is not worth it anymore. And here's a point of application for us. Our enemies rarely attack us head on. It's rare. And that goes for us spiritually as well. When we are spiritually attacked, the enemy knows that we have a powerful backing, that we have a powerful military escort. So what does he have to do? He has to terrorize you. He has to look for these openings. He has to do these acts of terrorism to confuse you, discourage you, to demoralize you. And when you're doing the work for the glory of God, the enemy doesn't come straight up to you in a recognizable way. He comes in a covert, secret, sneaky, disguised way. Attacks are planned as he sees openings appear and weaknesses uncovered in you. And that's when those seeds of dissonance are put in there. That's when that resentment and that bitterness is planted inside of you. That's when these acts of terrorism are happening within you. Anything to separate you from God will be done to you. And it's rarely something that you can recognize in plain sight. Those Boston bombers, weren't they hidden? Like even in plain sight, they were hidden. They did it openly, but they did it in disguise. They did it as regular people, just wearing backpacks. This is how terrorism works. This is how terrorists work. This is your spiritual enemy. He is a terrorist. So we need to guard when doing work for the glory of God. And this is verse 9. And we prayed to our God and set a guard as a protection against them day and night. When you're partway through your work for the glory of God, during your half time, things can seem pretty daunting. You know, you, you kind of look at your life and you're kind of wondering like, man, I am just halfway through this and that was tough. And I got to go through it more? And these guys built their wall to half its height, and they still have another half to go that is harder than that first half. And it's no good halfway done. 
your life, you have so much more. You have so much more. And so this can be a discouraging thing, though, if you've already been demoralized and already discouraged. You've worked so hard that you're just halfway through the project and you have the other half to go. But this time it's even tougher. There's more opposition. And that's just a demoralizing thing, especially when those around you start to believe that discouraging news and they share that with you too. And so what does Nehemiah and his crew do? They prayed to God and they set a guard as protection. Now we already know that Nehemiah is a person of prayer. In chapter 1, after hearing of Jerusalem's sad condition from his brother, he enters into a time of fasting and praying. In chapter 2, when the king recognizes his sadness and asks him, what are you requesting? Nehemiah prays. Chapter 4, he's entering into a time of prayer. We know him to be a person of prayer, but that is not all that Nehemiah is. Nehemiah is also a person who believes in work, in action. See, the fasting and the praying in chapters 1 and 2, they don't stop everything else that he does in life. His job as a cupbearer, he continues to work. He continues to do things. And in that continuation of work is when the king notices, you're sad. What do you want? And it's the prayers that give him the wisdom to ask for the travel papers and the resources, but then there's an action to all of this. Nehemiah asked for those items because there was work to be done in Jerusalem. And in those prayers, God even gave him the things that he didn't ask for. He didn't ask for a military escort. God gave that to him. And that was really important. And then when he prayed in chapter 4, after the jeering, the ridicule, the scoffing, he kept working. See, Nehemiah is a man of prayer and of action. He's not just a guy of prayer. Prayer and action. Yes, prayer is essential, but it doesn't stop there. It doesn't stop at prayer. We need to exercise faith and trust in God with our works, with our actions. James chapter 2, verses 17 through 20, and we're going to hop on over to verse 24. So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? And you jump down to verse 24. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. See, Nehemiah doesn't just pray. He prayed and he set a guard of protection against them day and night. If all he did was pray, why is he in Jerusalem? Why not just sit in the comfort of the palace, still as the king's cupbearer, and just pray? Just pray. Pray things happen. And this is us sometimes. We're, we're just, oh, we're going to pray. We're going to pray about it. But you don't do anything about it. Did Nehemiah pray the wall into existence from Susa? No, he makes this journey. He asks for all these things, these resources to do something. See, when we approach the Christian life, sometimes I think we get lazy. That we just pray. And then we just leave it at that. We just leave it at that. And so we say things like, I want to get married. 
I want to get married. You know, the thing is, probably not going to happen if all you do is you work and then you go home. Probably not going to happen. You need to put yourself around people to meet them. Right? You need to do something. There are things you can do. There are things that you can work on, like asking people out. You can do that. Right? I want a job. Probably not going to happen if you're just sitting at home watching TV. It's probably not going to happen. You're going to have to probably do more than just apply. You're probably going to have to do more than just submitting your CV. If you really want that job, you got to network. you got to meet that hiring manager. After you meet that hiring manager, you got to write out those thank you cards. you got to do stuff. There are things to work on in order for you to get there. So yes, you pray. You pray for your circumstances. You pray for your spouse, your family, your children. You pray for everything. And you work on it. You work on it. Don't just pray for a better marriage. You work on it. You do stuff. You don't just pray for your kids that they grow up a certain way or they learn certain things or whatever. You teach them. You do something. You build the relationship with your kids. You go take them to the park and have fun and have conversations. You don't just pray. You pray and you work. Verse 10. In Judah it was said, the strength of those who bear the burdens is falling. There is too much rubble. By ourselves we will not be able to rebuild the wall. So they hear of discouragement from within in verse 10. And they hear of discouragement from outside, verse 11. And our enemy said, they will not know or see till we come among them and kill them and stop the work. The enemy's goal of causing confusion seems to be working because more people from within start spreading this negativity with more frequency. Look at verse 12. At that time, the Jews who lived near them, near the enemies, came from all directions and said to us ten times, you must return to us. And here's an important principle from verse 12. We are influenced by those we surround ourselves with. You're influenced by them. The Jews who lived near them, those enemies, came from all directions and they said to us, See, if you constantly hear those discouraging, critical, disheartening, depressing things, how do you think that's going to influence you? How do you think that's going to cause you to feel what emotions are going to come out from that? Now, there are times to be around those things because your friends are suffering through a moment that they are that way and you need to minister to them, but it's not all the time. Unhealthy to be around that all the time. See, you become more and more like the people you spend your time with. You become more like them. And the Jews who lived near the enemy started buying into what they were saying and then influencing other Jews and believing all that negativity, so much so that they say the same thing ten times. And so confusion seems to be taking hold here. And it's times like this when leadership needs to appear. When Nehemiah stepped in to stop this chaos to calm what was going on to help the people stop staring at the rubble that they're only halfway to stop focusing on this half-built wall and to help them refocus on their mission 
Looking at something that's only partially finished with so much more to go can be a paralyzing thing, especially when the project is so huge and your life depends on it and you're faced with hostility. This wall has not been rebuilt for decades. How in the world are we going to do this? And here are these people who are not qualified to build it. And on top of that, there are these people surrounding them that want them dead, north, south, east, west, from every direction, who want to kill them. And so this initial excitement that was stirred up, that is gone. These people are tired, and now they're faced with the reality that there's these other people. Now Now we have the Ashdodites in on this, and they want to just kill us. And so this can be some churches. Something big happens, and it goes well for a little while, but then some time passes on. There's some opposition. People are tired. Enemy has sown in some confusion. We start looking at the rubble. We start looking at a half-built ministry, how there's so many things challenging out there, all this hostility, and we just start losing our focus. We start losing that vision, that mission, and that swagger that was just once there at the very beginning with all the excitement and everything. It's just gone. And whenever times like this happen, we need to help people refocus on the mission, refocus on the vision that the Lord has put before us to take their eyes off of the rubble and to look to God, to look to their mission that God has given them. When all people see is rubble, they get discouraged, they get demoralized. And as leaders, we need to help them look up. Get your eyes off of the rubble, look up. We need to help them see what's truly important to them. What is truly important to them? And this is what Nehemiah did. Look at verse 13. So in the lowest parts of the space behind the wall in open spaces, I stationed the people by their clans with their swords, their spears, and their bows. See what Nehemiah did. It's actually a brilliant, brilliant move. I stationed people by their clans. Do you get that? What's really important to most people? Most people in their world. This is a common thing. What is most important to them? Their family. Their family. Their clan. So you see how Nehemiah helped them to see what's really important to you. You know who your family is. Your mom, your dad, your brother, your sister, your kids, your spouse. So he stationed people along the wall by their families. If he just stationed people at random spots, they're like, hey, you're over here. You go over there. You go over there. They're just at random places. That may have helped them to see like, oh yeah, I got an enemy and I got a wall and it's halfway built and I need to do that. And I can see, okay, God's visions, God's mission, all this stuff. But if the enemy starts coming over, I'm out of here. (laughs) That's freaky. I don't want to get killed. But you put them in front of their family? Are they going to run? Not unless you kill me. Not unless you kill me. The only way you're getting to them is through me. And I'd rather die then desert them. I'm going to fight. See, things change when you're put in front of the things that are really important to you, that you're willing to stand and fight. See, that's not just a mission and vision to defend anymore. It is more than that. It's a wall that needs to be defended because everything important to me is behind it. So I'm going to defend this with my life, and the only way that enemy is getting to them is going through me. I am going to die fighting here. I am not going to let down this position. I'm not going to desert my post. There's no way they're getting through without me dying right here. 
I am not going to sleep on my watch. I'm not going to slack off for my loved one's sake. The important things to me. And so Nehemiah stationed them at the open places, just very strategic there, with their weapons. And so he doesn't put them there empty-handed. He puts them there in open places. And the same thing that God does with you. You don't go out empty-handed. He doesn't send you out empty-handed. He's given you the Holy Spirit. He's given you the Word of God. He's given you this church. He doesn't send us out to places empty-handed, but he also doesn't send us out to places that are well-fortified. He sends us out to open places. You notice you're in Oakland? It's a very open place here. That's how he sends you out. But he sends you very well-equipped. Right? You look at what these guys are equipped with, a sword, a spear, and a bow. Why are all these three things listed? A bow because from afar, if you see an enemy from afar, you can shoot them. If they get a little bit closer, you have a spear that keeps them at about 6 to 10 feet away and you can fight them that way. If they get any closer, then you take out your sword and you can fight between 3 to 6 feet. Any closer, then it's hand-to-hand and you can fight that way. But you can see all these different lengths of defense and God does the same thing for you. You can always pray. That's a long thing, right? There's all these different layers of defense that the Lord has given you. He's given you the Holy Spirit. He's given you the church. He's given you prayer. He's given you scripture. And so here we are in Oakland. We've been put in open places. We've been put in dark places. You look at Matthew chapter 5, verses 14 through 16. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Where have you been placed to be light? Your job, your school, your gym, wherever that is. And have you lost sight of where you are at? Have you lost sight of what's really important to you? And if you don't stand in that gap, you don't share the gospel and fight for your loved ones, who's going to? Who's going to do that? And you're not alone in this. Verse 14, And I looked and arose and said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, Do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord, who is great and awesome, and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. See, you're not alone. God is with you. Stop staring at the rubble in your life. Look to the mission God has put before you. Stop listening to all the negative and discouraging things that are of no help to you and pray. But don't stop at prayer. Pray and work. Do something. Do what you can. Do it for God. Do it for yourself. Do it for those who are really important to you. Do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight. Sometimes people look at Christianity and think that it's just really passive and like, oh, just pray and be nice. And You look at Nehemiah, fight. Fight. He arms him with a sword, a spear, and a bow, and you fight. Now the rest of the chapter, we don't have time to go into those things in detail. The benefits of going to two services and making things shorter, okay? But the rest of the chapter, it doesn't show that the Israelites are victorious. But it does show that they continue to work, that they continue to fight. And that's something to keep in mind in our own battles. That the victory in our everyday life and our everyday fight is for those moment-by-moment times of righteousness and holiness. And we have this incredible backing behind us. 
God. Just like Nehemiah having the Persian Empire behind him, the enemy can't do an all-out war against him. They have to kind of do these little acts of terrorism. The terrorism is to prevent you from growth and progress and work for God. And enduring the terrorist attacks isn't where the victory is. It's to continue to be on guard, progressing, growing, and working for God. See, we don't stop being on guard because he doesn't stop looking for opportunities of terrorism. Now, it doesn't mean that we're to be paranoid. It means that we're to be on alert, to be ready. In verses 16 through 18, they show us that they worked on the wall and they were armed to fight, always ready, but they're not paranoid. And then verses 19 through 23 show us that they were always ready to defend, working hard. They were putting in the effort. They were communicating and they were properly armed. They had this attitude. All the things that they can control, they controlled that. And the things that they can't, well, you can't control it. And so may we always be ready for the work in the glory of God. May we join together as a church backing each other up, supporting and encouraging one another in our spiritual journeys with God. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word. I ask, Lord, that your spirit has been stirring up the folks in here, that it wasn't just reliant on the words coming out of my mouth, Lord, but something supernatural was happening in them, that they sensed your presence. I pray, Lord, that you would equip us to minister to one another that you would equip us for the work of ministry, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.